verses 1 and 2. Give you a moment to turn there, your Bible or phone or whatever you're looking at. Romans 5, 1 through 2, page 942. And remember as we read, we're reading God's Word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's God's word. You may be seated. There's a phrase that's gone on uh, in Redemption Church for quite a while. I heard it years ago, uh, kind of coined for the first time, and perhaps you've heard this, but perhaps you've heard me say it or someone else say it. Uh, but the phrase is this, what you know trumps what you feel. What you know trumps what you feel. Now that's a really important phrase because we all know, you know and I know, that, that we live not primarily out of the things we know, but out of how we feel. We're driven more by our emotions than by our intellect. We're, we're driven more by our feelings than by truth. And yet the scripture comes and it declares all these things to be true. Things about you and who you are. Things about things you're to do. Things about what's right and what's wrong. And what's good for you and what's bad for you. And what's worth celebrating and and what isn't. And yet so often, instead of living in light of what we know, we live by how we feel. I think about it just just this week. I got an offer, a special offer for something that I would like. It's not something I need, but it's something I would like. And I don't have the money for it man, I feel like I'd really like it. And so fortunately, I have a wife who I can ask about it, and she can say, hey, bud, we don't have the money for that. That sounds stupid right now. And so that was a nice little checkpoint. But I I needed some help because if left to myself, I would have just done what I felt, not what I knew. I knew I I didn't have the money for it, but, but I want it. You all know that vegetables are better for you than cronuts, or smash burger, but man, smash burger is good, and it's fresh, so that's okay, right? And, and we just, there's all these things, we, right, on a daily basis, you have interactions with, with people, you have interactions with, with your children, you have interactions with husband and wife, and, and so often we're driven by our feelings instead of by what we know. Well, Paul is beginning a new section in the book of Romans today. And this new section uh, that really goes from chapter 5 through uh, chapter 8 is going to give us a lot of important things to know, some great truths that we can know, some declarations about who we are. And these declarations are so powerful, but they're only powerful if we live in them. They're only powerful if we let these declarations, these facts, these truths, these realities trump what we feel. And so my hope today, and what I've been praying for as I've prepared for today, is that these truths that we talk about, these realities that are true, that we've got to live by, that we would actually feel them. That we'd feel them. My prayer is that as we look at God's Word here today, you would look at these things and not just go, oh, that's a good point. Oh, that's true. But to go, oh, I love how true that is. And I'm going to live in light of that. Let's pray and ask for God's help with that, can't we? Father, thank you that you are so committed to our good. God, give us the capacity and ability today to feel how powerful these truths are, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned, chapter 5 begins a kind of transition 
uh, up to this point, Paul had been really making an argument uh, that we can be made right with God by faith. The theological way to say that would be justification by faith. We're made right, justified by faith. He started off the book of Romans talking about our sin and how we've, we've rebelled against God. We've said, God, I don't want anything to do with you. And how God has come near to us. God has, has sacrificed himself in the person of Jesus to bring us near. And if, if we trust him, then we can be made right with him. That's what the, the, the passages in chapters 1 through 4 have been about. It's been saying you can be made right with God, not by trying harder, not by being better, not by redoubling your efforts at moralism, but by faith, by trusting in Christ. Now, what Paul is going to begin to say in this next chunk is that in light of believing that, there are some things that are true about you. In fact, we see this transitional kind of phrase in the first part of verse 1. Look at it with me there if you've got your Bible. Chapter 5, verse 1. He says, therefore, in light of everything that we've just said, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, dot, dot, dot. He's going to tell us the rest. And so what we get today is that everything that follows this, everything we're going to talk about today, comes by justification through faith. So if you come from a perspective that says, well, I've got to earn it. I, if I'm going to be made right with God. I've got, got to do it. Maybe you have a perspective that says, you know, I've really done a lot of bad things. And there's no way God can just accept me. I've got to clean up my act a little first. Or maybe you come from a perspective that's like, yeah, well, it's, it's definitely God's grace, but I got to do a lot too. It's kind of this grace plus thing. If you come from that perspective, then these realities that he's going to say, these are true about you, they're not true for you. These are true for those who are justified by faith. For those who are saying, my only hope to be made right with God is his grace through faith. That's my only hope. And if that's you, then, then what Paul's going to show us here is that justification by faith provides three precious realities. Three precious realities. These are things that are true about us. These are not things where Paul is saying, go do this. These are not commands. These are statements, declarations of fact. These are things that are true about those who are justified by faith. Precious realities that if we hold on to, they can trump what we feel. The first one is peace with God. Peace with God. You see it there in verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Now, when we think about peace, we typically think about sort of a feeling of serenity or calm or tranquility, right? That's what we think about. People say, I'm on a quest for peace. I'd like to feel peace. And there's places where the Bible talks about that. The Bible says that one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is peace. When God's at work in your life, there's increasing peace in your mind. God tells us in the Scripture that, that when we pray, that the peace of God that surpasses understanding guards us and covers us. And so that kind of personal peace is a really important thing. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about a different kind of peace. Not the, not the feeling of tranquility, but, but the fact that hostility between you and God has ceased. Right? So, so imagine that I came to you and I said, breaking news, I just got on my phone, there's peace in the Middle East. You would not imagine that I meant by that that a bunch of Arabs and Jews are walking around going, serenity now. <laughs> serenity now. I feel so calm. 
Right? That, that's clearly not what would be meant by there's peace in the Middle East. Peace in the Middle East would be the hostilities have ceased. These factions that have been at war, these people that have been enemies have been reconciled. There's now peace. That's what Paul's talking about because he told us earlier in this book that we're enemies of God. Our sin has separated us from him. We've said to God, God, I want your stuff. I don't really want you. I'd like your blessings, but, but just if you could kind of do your own thing, I'll do my thing. And, and so therefore, the scripture says we're enemies. But by faith, we have peace with God. In fact, it describes this down in chapter 10. We'll look at this in a, in a few more weeks. But, but here's what it says in chapter 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We were enemies of God. But by faith, there's now peace. We have peace with God. Now listen, this in and of itself would be amazing news to think that people who have rebelled against the God of the universe could be forgiven because someone else took the punishment they deserved. If all you ever had was peace with God, okay, me and God aren't fighting anymore. If all you had was that, you would have enough. That'd be incredible. But this passage continues. And Paul says you get more than that. You don't just have peace with God, the end of hostilities. You get even more. So secondly, justification by faith gives us access by faith into this grace. Access into his grace. That's number two. Access into this grace. Look at, look at verse two. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Peace would be great. Like, wow, uh, we're not fighting anymore. Access is a whole different ballgame. Access is now welcoming you in. And it's not just welcoming you in and keeping you at arm's length. It's welcoming you in all the way. I was thinking a little bit about access, and I was um, thinking about a story um, from a few years back. I had a friend that was, at the time, playing baseball for the San Diego Padres. And we were out in San Diego towards the end of the baseball season, and he said, um, he said to Molly and I, he said, hey, um, we're having our end-of-the-year team party tonight. Do you guys want to come? I was like, well, only if it's at Peter Piper. I mean, I've been to a lot of team parties, right? I mean, I've played sports all growing up. I've been to a lot of end-of-the-year banquets, and, you know, you get a little trophy or ribbon or, you know, whatever. I've been, I've been to those. I'm going, I would love to see what a major league baseball end-of-the-year team party is like. And so, so we go. We're like, yeah, let's go. And uh, we, we go to this place, and it was one of the owners um, of, one of, the, of the team, and it was at his house. And it was the kind of thing where I'm not kidding. I overheard people that had made over $100 million in their baseball career looking around going, wow. Maybe if I make some more money, I could have a house like this someday. I mean, that's the kind of place it was. I've been to a lot of team parties, right? There's, there's trophies and there's things at the end. I've never been to one where I, someone got a Rolex. But I did at the San Diego Pot. Two guys got Rolexes, the rookie of the year and their most valuable player. It was incredible. It was an incredible thing to watch. It was an incredible thing to be sort of looking in on. And, and in some ways, I felt like I had access, but, but that's not the kind of access that's being described here. That's still just kind of arm's length access. That's being invited in to sort of look at the festivities and being invited in to look at these other people being honored. 
What Paul here is talking about is, is access. It would be as if it was like, hey, Luke, do you want to come to the party? Yeah, sure. All right, well, look, we got a jersey for you. You're starting at third base tomorrow, and we got a Rolex. Here, why don't you have it? I don't think I could even wear a Rolex. I'd like have to walk around like this or something. But I mean, it just, that would be, that would be the kind of access Paul's talking about. We're not talking about just sort of, well, you, you can come in and watch. But the real blessings for other people. It's not just peace. Hey, we're not fighting anymore. And it's not just, yeah, come in and watch. It's access. It's being welcomed. It's being invited in. Into what, you say? Well, that's what he says. It's access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You're being invited into what Paul describes almost as a whole new realm, a whole new reality of grace. You are standing in grace. It's like this pool of water that you're standing in, and you're there, and you're cleansed, and you're covered. It's an amazing thing. You're, you're given access into this grace, and you're standing in it. You're firm in it. It's a position of, of strength and honor. You're standing in grace. You've been welcomed into that. Listen, that's good news, because here's the thing. Even when you fall in sin, you're still standing in grace. Right? If God invited you into this thing and was like, hey, you're in grace for now. Don't screw it up. You'd, you'd be out of it in a second. But Paul is saying that the hostility has ceased and, and God has welcomed us in through Jesus into grace and you're standing in it and you're firm in it and even when you fall in sin, you're standing in grace. You go, well, how did that happen? What, what gives us that kind of access? Well, there's a fascinating place in the gospel accounts, the stories that tell Jesus' life. In Matthew, Mark, and in Luke, they all tell this account of how when Jesus died on the cross, one of the things that happened immediately after he died, such a fascinating thing, is it says that the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. The curtain was torn in two. And you and I read that, and we don't have enough cultural sense to know what to make of that. That just sounds like weird. But if you understood the culture, if you understood how it worked, if you understood what the temple was like, you would know that in the temple there were these outer courts where, where people would be sort of able to kind of look in, especially non-Jews could sort of, you know, there was this Gentile outer court, they could kind of look in at what was going on, and then there was an inner court where, where men were allowed, and, and Jews who had gone through ceremonial, ceremonial cleansing was allowed, and then there was a holy place where the priests were allowed, and then there was the most holy place. And the most holy place was where the presence of God was. And, and it was so holy, it was so precious, that the high, only the high priest could go into the most holy place, and only once a year. And there was a curtain between the holy place and the most holy place. And that curtain, when Jesus died, miraculously was torn in two. And it was God saying, I'm giving you access to me, into my grace. I don't want you just standing there on the outer courts, Gentiles. Come in. I don't want you just standing there in the inner courts, ladies. Come in. I don't want you to have to be all dressed up and spiritually renewed before you can come in. Just come in. Access. Given access into this grace in which we stand. There's a third thing, though. See, there's not just we've ended hostilities, and it's not just that we're welcomed in, and those are wonderful, but there's also hope. 
for a future glory. The past hostilities have ceased. We're presently standing firm in the grace of God. And there's a hope for a future. Look at what he says, verse 2. Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There's a hope that we have. There's a hope. And when the Bible talks about hope, get this, the Bible doesn't talk about hope the way we typically think about it. We think about hope usually as sort of a wishful thinking. Boy, wouldn't it be great if that happened? I, lo- I hope I'll get a raise. I you know, hope my kids don't kill each other in the back of the van. I, I hope that, right? I mean, that kind of stuff. That's not the way the Bible describes hope. When the Bible says that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's a hope that's a certain hope. We know what's coming. We know the end of the story. And the end of the story is that we get the glory of God. So listen, not only do you go from being enemies of God, not only then do you get welcomed in, you have a hope that you will be in the presence of God, in His glory forever. Now, now that's a big deal because when the scripture talks about God's glory, when you encounter people that experience God's glory in the scripture, the the glory of God comes and the earth shakes because the glory of God is heavier. It's more significant. It's weightier. The glory of God comes and light shines. The, the, The manifestation of God comes and people get on their face and they say, woe to me, I'm undone. And Paul says, You're welcomed into God's presence. But when you get there, it isn't going to be scary. It's going to be a big deal for sure. I mean, you're not going to be flipping about it. But you're not going to have to hide and tear and go, woe to me, I'm undone, I'm unclean, because Jesus has already cleansed you on the cross. You've trusted that by faith. And so you now have been welcomed into his presence, and you have a hope in his glory forever. And this hope is certain. It's like a few years ago, I was watching uh, an Illinois football game. I'm so excited for football season to start here next week. Just cannot wait. And um, a few years ago, Illinois had a pretty good team, kind of a surprisingly good team. Juice Williams was the quarterback, really athletic guy. And um, we were playing Ohio State. And Ohio State, you know, they're like a rivalry to us at Illinois, but we're nothing to them. Like, we're no big deal. But so, like, to play Ohio State's a big deal. And uh, we had something going on that day, and I, and I couldn't see the game, and so I recorded it. And then I got word, I think from a text message or some, somebody ruined it for me, that Illinois had beaten Ohio State. And I was disappointed to get that text because I wanted to be surprised. But then I still watched the game. And it was interesting as I watched the game because Illinois played well, but it didn't always go their way, right? There would be a turnover, and I'd be like, oh, darn it. But then I would think, but we win. You know, then a guy would miss a tackle, and he'd go, oh, come on, what are you doing? Oh, but we win. See, I had, at that moment, a kind of biblical hope. It wasn't just, ah, I hope they'll win. I know they're going to win. I know this is coming. And if we have that kind of hope, if we have that kind of certainty, then, then yes, when things go wrong in our life, we go, oh, that stinks. But we have a hope. We have a certainty, which is why Paul can say that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in this. We've been enemies of God. That hostility's over. We're at peace. 
We've been strangers from God, but now we have access. We're welcomed in. We've been discouraged because our life is so up and down, but now we have a hope. We have a future. We have peace. We have access. We have hope. That's the truth. And one of the things I love about this passage is none of these are commands. Paul doesn't say, since you've been justified by faith, be at peace with God. Get access into grace. Have hope in glory. He doesn't say that. He says, because of justification by faith, because you've trusted him, you do have peace with God. Because you've trusted him, you do have access. Because you trusted him, you do rejoice in the glory of God. That is certain. That's hope. And if that can become real to us, if we can feel that, it changes everything. So I want to finish by just telling a story. And this is a story to me that that helps me feel it. Because I know those things, and I love those truths. And I can be here in a moment like this and go, yes. But I need something to help me feel it. So I want to just tell you a story. This is a story that Jesus told. It's one of the stories that he tells that you can actually understand. <laughs> Makes sense. You can go, oh, wait a minute, I don't get that one. No, you get this one. And it's found in Luke 15, if you want to go back and read it sometime. But, but this is basically the story. There's a man, and he had two sons. He's a wealthy man, owned land, owned property, had people that worked for him, owned a business. And at one point, his young son, probably in his late teens or early 20s, comes to him and says, Dad, listen, when you die, I know I'm getting an inheritance. I'd like it now. The equivalent of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Dad, I wish you would just go ahead and die because I want your stuff. I don't want you, but I want your stuff. And in that culture, the, when there were two sons, the older son got two-thirds of the estate and the younger son got one-third of the estate. And so the younger son comes and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. I don't want a relationship with you. I want your stuff. I, give me it now. Most fathers at that point would just backhand the kid. They're out of your mind. It's a shameful request. And yet this father amazingly gives it to him. He gives it to him. Probably had to liquidate a bunch of assets, maybe sell some livestock, maybe sell some property, maybe downsize his business. He had to do all kinds of things to liquidate some amount of money to be able to give his son his inheritance. He says, here you go. And the son goes, and it says he went off into a far country. Now, that would have been significant because this was a Jewish boy. And for a Jewish boy to go into a far country meant that he was going to have to associate with Gentiles, non-Jews, idolaters, pagans. And he begins to go there. It's kind of his version of heading off to Vegas. And he goes, and it says that he spent all that he had very quickly on reckless living. The King James Version calls it prodigal living. Recklessly extravagant. He blows through his money. And he ends up so destitute that he gets a job feeding pigs. Now, most of us wouldn't be very interested in feeding pigs. I mean, that's a pretty, you'd find that on dirty jobs, right? We wouldn't like that. But as bad as it would be for us, it was even worse for him because he was a Jewish boy. And for a Jew to have anything to do with pigs was the ultimate low especially to be the one that now has to serve the pigs, clean the pigs, feed the pigs, care for the pigs. That was his job. This is the lowest of the low. 
In fact, he's so hungry, and he's so discouraged that he begins to look at the food that the pigs are eating. And pigs will eat anything, right? You don't have to feed them, you know, prime rib. Like, they'll eat trash. He's looking at what they're eating going, man, I'd love to eat some of that. But no one would give him anything. And then he has a thought. In fact, the way it says it in the scripture is that he, he came to himself. He went, aha, oh, oh, wait, wait a minute. What am I doing? And the reality of his situation and the reality of his decisions and the consequences of all that he'd done were weighing down on him. And he went, oh, what am I doing? He goes, you know what, my, my father is generous. And he has many people that work for him. He has many people that are his servants. You know what I ought to do is I ought to go back to my father and say, Father, I screwed up, I blew it, I sinned against you, I sinned against God, and I I want you to hire me back as a hired servant. Dad, I'll work hard. Dad, I blew it. I, I, I don't want to do that again. And Dad, I'll work hard. And listen, everything I get, I will pay you back for, for all the money that you gave me. I'll just keep paying and keep paying and keep paying until finally you're paid off. I want to pay it back to you. I want to, I want to make it right. So he kind of works this speech up in his head, and, and then it says he, he went home. And you can just sort of imagine that walk home. I've sinned against God and against you. Make me a servant. I've sinned against God and against you. Make me a servant. He's practicing his speech. And he gets on the horizon of his father's property. And his father sees him. And the way Jesus tells the story, you almost get the sense that the father was looking for him. Here's this son that had dishonored him. Here's this son that said, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. And yet, the father's heart, like any true father, yearned for his son. And while he was still a long way off, the scripture says, he saw him. And he felt compassion on him. Instead of feeling angry, what did that idiot's back? What did he, does he know what he did to me? That's not his heart. He feels compassion and he hikes up the robe, exposing his legs, an incredibly shameful thing to do for a, for a landowning patriarch man. Women ran, children ran, not landowning rich men. And he bears his legs and he runs to his son. His son gets there and he's covered in stink and filth and grime and manure and pig food scraps. And the father doesn't say, son, clean yourself up first. The father comes and he runs and he almost knocks him over with the hug that he gives him. And he embraces him and he kisses him. And he shows this extravagant love. He just he squeezes him just that extra little bit. I'm so glad he's home, he's thinking. And the son has been rehearsing this speech. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I want to hire me back. I'll pay you back. And so the son launches into his speech. Dad, I blew it. I I sinned against God. I sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And before he can even get to his idea of paying it back, the father interrupts him. Says, son, I'm so glad you're home. And he calls to a servant and he says, hey, hey, get the, get the ring, get the robe, 
slaughter the fatted calf. We are having a party tonight. We are celebrating that my son who was once gone is home. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 5. We were that son who said, God, I I don't want you, but I want your stuff. We're that son that goes off and and spends all of the talent and time and resources that God has blessed us with on making ourselves great and giving ourselves pleasure and doing what we want. And we come up with an idea that goes, well, yeah, I really shouldn't do this, and maybe I can work it off. And God, in his extravagant prodigal grace, that's what the word prodigal means, recklessly extravagant. And God, in his prodigal grace, forgives us prodigal sons and daughters. And he comes and and he bears the shame that we deserve. And we get a robe of righteousness because God has given his son a robe of mocking before he went to the cross. And we get to eat the bounty of a feast from an animal that had been sacrificed because God the son was sacrificed for us. See, the son was at war with his father. I wish you were dead. And he's brought in, there's peace. And the son was a stranger. I don't want anything to do with you anymore, Dad. And he's given access. The son had no future. He had no hope. And now he's reinstated as a son in his father's household. Do you feel that? That's what God has said is true of you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your grace is recklessly extravagant. We thank you for these realities that you've placed us in. We thank you that we stand in a place of grace. Stir our hearts afresh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Luke. Um, I get to lead us in response now. Um, And the quote that came to me first service, and I'll use it again because I think it summarizes the heart of this message. Um, There's an old school guy, Blaise Pascal, old French mathematician, got saved later in life, and then he just spent the rest of his life writing about God. And he has one of the greatest little quotes I've ever read about just humans. And he says, the problem with humans is... Thank you.